I want to welcome you to Todd Talks this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. It is my delight to have as our guest today, Jeremy Everett. Jeremy is well known to many of you who join us. He is the founder and executive director of the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. The collaborative integrates research and practice through projects such as the Texas Hunger Initiative, the Research Fellows Program, the Global Hunger and Migration Project and the Hunger Data Lab, among many other projects that the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty is about. Jeremy holds the bachelor's from Sanford University, the master's of divinity from Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary. Presently, Jeremy is pursuing the doctor of ministry at Duke Divinity School. Jeremy is a widely known and sought after speaker, and he's also a published author. The volume that Jeremy has recently written is entitled, I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Jeremy, uh, welcome friends. So glad you were able to take the time uh, to visit today. Of course, honored to be here. And uh, always good to be with the Dean of Truett and uh, love seeing all the wonderful things that are happening with the seminary right now. It seems like um, as other seminaries are trying to figure out how to get their footing um, during a transitional time in American history, you all seem to continue to grow. And I know that's because of your leadership and your entrepreneurial spirit. So honored to be on the, on the podcast with you today, Todd. Jeremy, thank you. We're honored to name you among uh, our uh, alumni. Um, I'm eager to get going. Jeremy, um, let's start uh, here. Uh, was it the sound of music that says, let's begin at the beginning? So uh, we, we know where you now are, but you didn't get here overnight. So um, do you recall when and how you began to be acutely concerned about poverty and food insecurity? What cultivated this sensitivity in your heart, in your life, uh, so that you would uh, eventually do what you're doing now? Yeah, you know, I think uh, a number of things probably came to a point of convergence uh, when I was in my early 20s. Um, uh, we had moved around a good bit. My, my father is a, a, a Baptist pastor, and we used to joke with him that he only had three years worth of sermons, and so we, we would move a good bit <laughs> And uh, I didn't say there are three good years worth of sermons, but there are three years worth of sermons. Hopefully he's listening uh, so that I can rib him and he can't say anything back to me right now, which is wonderful. But we would, uh, we moved around a lot. And, uh, and so every time you move, you're a new kid in a new community and you, uh, you know what life is like on the outside. And so you, when you're on the outside, you can see all the other outsiders. Uh, you can see them plain as day. Oftentimes as we become more, you know, uh, successful or in, in, in childhood, maybe more popular, the people who are on the margins uh, begin to dissipate. They're harder to see. And so I was really grateful that we moved like we did because it, it kind of refreshed my memory every place that we went of, of who was on the margins, um, who, who was on the outside, um, because I could see them so clearly as a fellow outsider. I think it was that um, growing up, uh, moving around, uh, that began to uh, probably put people who are on the margins, at least um, a part of my, on my subconscious level. Uh, I also play basketball. And so oftentimes I might go play basketball with kids uh, who largely lived in 
uh, in housing projects or low-income neighborhoods. And then the next day, I might be with a group of friends that lived, you know, on the uh, on the edge of a golf course at a country club. And so I was able to see the dichotomy of what was happening in our nation, even if I wasn't able to reconcile it in my mind. And I wasn't able to reconcile it in my mind until my junior year of college, or after my junior year, I was serving as a youth minister uh, in a small town north of Birmingham where I was in college. And I was still living in the, in the dorm. And I remember coming across the story of St. Francis of Assisi uh, through, his, through a movie about him called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. And when I saw it, and I saw that Francis uh, wanted to live a life devoted to God and devoted to his neighbor, and so he literally gave away his possessions um, and, begun to, and began to live among uh, the poor and the lepers. And at that point, I knew exactly what my calling was. Uh, it was like the flash of light. I knew I needed to gather up all my possessions, those that had meaning, and I gathered them up and I put them in my, my little car and I drove over the mountain into downtown Birmingham uh, near Kelly Ingram Park, uh, where a lot of the civil rights activity happened uh, in the 60s and today or then. Uh, there were a lot of homeless people that would hang out there and I gave away my possessions and at that point I knew I was called to the issue of poverty. Now I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea. I had no idea what next step uh, needed to, I needed to take, um, but I knew at that point that, that that's where it all uh, kind of came together for me. Wow, I, I didn't know that story. I'm really glad I asked that question. So Jeremy, this was your Damascus Road, and we've learned that St. Francis was an important part of that, quote, conversion experience. Are there other individuals uh, who have helped to shape your affections and your vocation as you've been on this journey uh, in this direction? Uh, certainly. Um, I, I think we all know that we, we didn't get here by ourselves. And uh, the road was oftentimes paved by many people, uh, paved by many people that we'll never know. Um, but for me, uh, uh, I knew in part that I needed to immediately move into uh, a low-income community. And so I, when I came to Truett the following year uh, to, to study uh, in the Divinity School, um, I rented a little house in a low-income neighborhood. And then uh, the following year, we rented another house, but this time with a group of seminary students and also in a low-income area in Waco and really immersed ourselves. So I would say the people from the community, uh, people who are experiencing poverty on a daily basis, uh, they were my first tutors. Um, they, they were the ones that, that began to help me uh, maybe uh, uh, gain more clarity about what my calling actually uh, needed to be about, um, what commitment looked like um, uh, to them. And along the way, though, we certainly had people and professors that, that were instrumental in my life. Uh, Bill Treadwell was a professor uh, at Truett, and Bill really took me under his wing like he did a lot of us uh, when during his tenure at Truett. And I spent a lot of time with him and he was a wise elder and, and he really invested in, in helping me understand what my calling was and, and who I was called to be. Along the way, I was able to meet Gustavo Gutierrez and of course read a lot of his work. Um, and then uh, work for Jimmy Doral. Uh, Jimmy Doral uh, really gave me my first opportunity um, to earn a paycheck while, while also addressing issues of poverty. That wasn't a big paycheck. Uh, but, uh, but it was something and uh, it, it complimented my other two or three jobs that I had as a seminary student. And, uh, but, but he really invested in me and helped me begin to understand principles of, of Christian community development, 
um, of reconciliation. Um, and so I think those people really were instrumental um, in, in helping me get my feet under myself. Mm. Jeremy, I've so enjoyed working uh, alongside and with you at Baylor over the years. And I was uh, so appreciative of the chance we had to work together as you were uh, launching and developing the Texas Hunger Initiative. Please tell us the story of how all of this got started and how it has morphed, or is it better to say mushroomed, uh, into the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Uh, tell, tell the story. Folks are uh, eager to, to, to know about it. It's, it's a wonderful story. Well, let me tell you a couple of stories that led up to it. And, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, so for 20 years, uh, my family and I lived in low-income communities uh, so that we could see, as I was saying before, see what was happening uh, from the inside out. I think Brian Stevenson says it best when he says, you can't solve a social problem from a distance. You have to have proximity to the problem. Mm -hmm. And so living in low-income communities and working there gave me some level of proximity and maybe helped me see and uh, things that I would not have been able to see personally, um, just knowing how hard-headed I can be and how I can, I can come up with solutions uh, too quickly oftentimes and, and, and miss the miss what the actual problem is and, and, uh, and then send us on a wild goose chase. So it was important for me to immerse myself in those realities. Uh, we had a lot of neighbors um, that, that lived around us that, that, um, that influenced our life. And uh, one, one neighbor that, that uh, her, her experience um, influenced me more than probably any other experience I've had uh, living in low-income communities. And her name was Lupe. Um, I write about her um, in, in, in my book and I, I've I've talked to some of our students about her um, in the past, but Lupe uh, was uh, uh, had eight children. Uh, she and her, her husband were devout Catholics, and he was the only person on our block in the low-income neighborhood of the west side of San Antonio um, that had gainful employment with one employer. Uh, now, he still didn't make enough money to make ends meet. Uh, they oftentimes had the power cut off. Um, they had the water cut off. Um, that they were living in, in difficult circumstances. We knew that their kids didn't have adequate access to food uh, because during the summer months when they were out of school, they might come down to play with our boys and, uh, and, and we would provide them some snacks and they would just gobble them up and it didn't take us long to realize that that might be all they would be eating for a day or a couple of days because the family was just trying to make their dollar stretch. Now, Lupe was also the primary caregiver to her two wheelchair-bound parents and, and they lived with her and so every day, uh, she would help them kind of get situated uh, and, and off to a senior center that was uh, near their home. Uh, her husband would take the one small car that they had to work, and then Lupe would make her way down to the schools. She was a fierce advocate for education. She was really kind of St. Lupe of, of, of public school uh, education in, in the West Side. And so she knew the ticket out of poverty for her kids was for them to get an education and hopefully go to San Antonio Community College. And so she would leave and she would go to the school, she'd go to the elementary school and she'd go to the middle school and then she would go to the high school and she would volunteer not only to make sure that her kids were well prepared for graduation, but the other kids were as well. And that was in a neighborhood where our best high school had a 50% dropout rate. Wow. So Lupe was devoted and we got to know Lupe and her family while we lived there and it was a wonderful experience. But Lupe got an ear infection. I've told you this story, Todd, and she got an ear infection and and uh, like most people in our neighborhood, she didn't have health insurance. And so she waited until that ear infection was too painful to bear. 
she caught uh, a, a bus down to an emergency room um, and waited in the emergency room, uh, and, but her name was never called. And then she knew she needed to catch a bus at the end of the day to get back home before her kids got out of school. Well, later that evening, her eardrum ruptured, the infection went to her brain, and she fell into a coma, and she never woke up. The following day, her husband and her older children were going door to door in our neighborhood, raising money for memorial service so that they could bury their mother. Her husband came to my front porch and we, he sat on my front porch and he just buried his head in his hands. He just was weeping saying, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? When we hear those stories, oftentimes we wanna pretend like, 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 like poverty or hunger or healthcare access is the fault of Lupe and her husband, Luis, and the choices and actions that they chose to take. But that's certainly not the case. They were, they were working hard. They were devout members uh, of their local church. She was taking care of her parents who were wheelchair bound, uh, not to mention taking care of her children and other kids in the neighborhood. For me, when I was looking at this issue and I had experienced similar, similar stories in North Waco and in East Waco and in Anacostia in DC and in downtown Birmingham, I realized we are oftentimes trying to address hunger or poverty as if they are a local, a local problem alone, but they're systemic in nature. And so I said, so uh, I, I tell our team all the time that, so when you try to address poverty purely as a local issue, it's like trying to address internal bleeding with a topical cream. It doesn't matter how much cream you put on your body, you're not gonna stop the bleeding. So you have to work at a local state and federal level, even a global level, all at the same time, if you actually wanna affect the problem. And that became the impetus, uh, that thought became the impetus for our work uh, when we created the Texas Hunger Initiative and then ultimately the Baylor Collaborative. And it was Susie Painter um, that, that called that forth. And so every important thing that's happened in my life, I feel like there's been somebody else outside that said, uh, it's, it's time for you to come do this. Uh, whether it was Jimmy uh, saying that to me about Mission Waco uh, or my friend Charlie Johnson calling me to San Antonio or Susie Painter uh, calling about creating the Texas Hunger Initiative. And so I, I owe all three of them a huge gratitude and a huge, a huge amount of debt. Uh, of gratitude um, for, uh, for them seeing something in me that, that, and, and then putting me in a position to be able to do what I feel like God created me to do, our, our vocation, and, and to live that out. And so we, we knew that we needed to have research. Uh, Baylor was uh, really kind of, that was the advent of Baylor's focus on, on growing our research portfolio. And we knew that if we did good research from the beginning, that we would have a better idea of identifying what the true problems were in, in, around hunger and poverty related issues in our country. And that if we had people that were immersed in communities, um, kind of like John Lewis would talk about uh, incarnational organizers that were living and dwelling among the people. If we had those two things, then we could probably begin to figure out what the actual problems were and what the solutions could be uh, that were scalable to try to address hunger and poverty around the country. And so that was a culmination of a number of things that happened, uh, but I'm very grateful that they did happen um, because I wouldn't be here now um, without those people uh, mm -hmm. calling that forth. Jimmy Doral, 
Charlie Johnson, Susie Painter. Uh, that's quite a triumvirate there. Um, so uh, uh, you had your Ananiases, as it were. Uh, <laughs> and uh, now here's the Baylor Hunger Collaborative. Uh, speaking of such, one of the most recent stories of interest and impact, Jeremy, is how the collaborative partnered with McLean Hunger Solutions, PepsiCo's Food for the Good, and Chartwells from March to August of last year to feed, wait for it, everyone, to feed 270,000 children in 43 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, 38.7 million meals as a part of this Emergency Meals to You, the EMTY program. So, so Jeremy, um, I, when, I, when I read this um, on Baylor News, I, I was just, I mean, you know, we, we talked from time to time and you told me you were up to this, but I had no appreciation of the scale in size and scope of this. So please share with us, how was this program envisioned? And then how, how under heaven was it executed? And, and is, is there a future? Uh, is, is there kind of a horizon for this program? Uh, well, great, great question. And, uh, um, you know, uh, I think as, as we've evolved, uh, we, we started Texas Hunger Initiative in 2009. Here we are 12 years later. Uh, February will be 12 years with this organization. We've evolved, created the, a larger umbrella, uh, the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. And we've really evolved into a research and innovation project that, that is university-based. We now have 60 research fellows that work with us, half of whom are Baylor faculty, half are faculty around the country, and they are as sharp as they come. Uh, it is a real privilege to be able to work alongside of them. We've got seven regional offices around Texas, uh, made up of, of, of incredible incarnational organizers who are organizing communities every day to be able to solve, um, solve some of our most difficult issues. Um, the combination of those people and then some amazing strategists and, and, and lead researchers, uh, Doug McDurham, uh, who leads our public service effort uh, in, uh, for, for the collaborative is, I believe, and of course, I'm not objective, but I believe he is the best, uh, best strategy guy uh, in the anti-hunger community in the U.S. And I hope not too many people watch this because I don't, I, I don't want somebody to try to post it. Uh, but, uh, and then Dr. Kathy Cry has been leading our research and administration efforts now for years. And the two of them together are a dynamic duo. So most of my job, Todd, is to not get in their way and to let them do their thing. And when that happens, uh, we, we are in good shape, both as an organization and as a country. And so uh, fortunately, I was able to get out of their way when they needed to scale up Meals to You during the pandemic. So typically for us, we're, we're, we're testing out about a dozen different interventions. Uh, so we're always looking for scalable solutions. That's our thing. Uh, what, what are scalable solutions that can work both in Lubbock and in Tyler um, and in Des Moines um, uh, to, to be able to eradicate hunger in the U.S. or even around the globe in some instances. And so for us, one, one of the things we identified, and this was something that when I served on a congressional commission a few years ago, uh, we identified that there were, uh, that the, the interventions that were working to address hunger in the U.S. in urban areas weren't translating to rural areas. 
Um, and our field offices were seeing the same thing. So it's kind of confirmed on both fronts. And then our researchers identified something similar. Our policy, um, the, the policy advocates in Washington and, and different legislative uh, members also were articulating something similar. So we knew that we needed to focus a project on rural America. And we determined that since we couldn't get meals or kids to, to meal programs during the summer months when they were out of school because they lived too far away from a school or a church or a nonprofit organization, we had to figure out how to get the meals to the kids. And so that became the advent of the Meals to You program. And we launched it in 2019 uh, with, uh, with uh, 4,000 kids as opposed to nearly 300,000 kids uh, over a 10-week trial run in 20 different school districts in East and West Texas. Uh, and, and we recruited McLean Global uh, um, to, uh, to source the food and box the food. And then we worked to identify uh, where the kids lived. And, and then we would ship the food by UPS or USPS or FedEx directly to the front porch of the kids. Well, the program worked great. Uh, we ended up serving 500,000 meals and snacks to kids in that, in that time period. And so USDA came back to us and said, can you expand the program to Alaska and New Mexico? And my first thought was Alaska, you know, that's, you know, that's like going from little league to the big leagues. Um, you know, that, that rural doesn't begin to describe uh, the challenges in Alaska. So we said, sure, uh, we would do it. Well, then the pandemic looked like it was about to hit and it looked like school districts might start to close. And so USDA called us again and they said, is there any way that you could expand the program nationwide basically tomorrow? And that was in early March. Um, and fortunately, you know, we were able to say yes. Uh, it was a huge, uh, huge undertaking also for the university because uh, the university really had to help manage this process um, as well as our team working with, uh, with school districts all around the country. And I tell you what, Todd, we, we not only ship directly to people's front porches, but in places like Alaska, um, where they, they didn't even, uh, one of the superintendents told us that they were 300 miles from the nearest road system. So we had to send, we had to send food in by barge, by helicopter, even sled dogs in the Arctic Circle. We had, we had mules delivering meals to children in the Havasu tribe down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and then everywhere in between. So these were children, these 270,000 children are children that live in the most remote places in the US. And if it were not for uh, a great team here at Baylor, a great team in the collaborative, great companies like McLean Global, we ask a couple more to join us, Chartwell's and PepsiCo's Food for Good program. There's no way that we could have done this. Um, but it all had to do with public and private partnerships. USDA had to play a front and center role and by all of us utilizing our strengths together, uh, we were able to overcome some, some very difficult logistical challenges. So grateful to everybody that was involved uh, for us to be able to do it. And we are hoping to continue the program. Uh, we'll have at least the so small uh, three-state version going this next summer, um, but we're in conversations right now with USDA and Congress to determine if we're gonna roll this back out to the same states that we rolled it out to last summer. So we'll, we'll uh, we'll, we'll be eager to find out uh, what, what they choose to do, but our team is standing at the ready. That's absolutely amazing. It makes me think, uh, so where there is a will, there really is a way. If you can uh, do mills with mules and, and sled dogs, uh, Jeremy, that's, that, that's absolutely amazing to me. Let's pivot a tad. Uh, I want to uh, visit with you uh, now about uh, not 
not Jeremy Everett, the, uh, uh, the, the organizer, the administrator, the, um, uh, the visionary. I, I want to talk to you a bit about uh, Jeremy Everett, the, the writer, Jeremy Everett, uh, the, the public intellectual. So Jeremy, your, your first published book, uh, 2019, uh, I Was Hungry, uh, was published and uh, took to great effect. As you look back on that project, uh, it, are you too close to it uh, to see some of the impact that uh, it has had, at least the perceived impact? Uh, and if not, could you just reflect with us just a bit about uh, what, what good you see that book doing? Baylor University Press talks about books for good. Uh, so what, what is um, some of the good that has come out of this book, best you can tell? Well, it gave some of our, our, our staff members who are great editors an opportunity to really challenge themselves. That's, that's what I'm doing. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that may be the first person that turned in a draft in crayon uh, to uh, Raz's press, but uh, everybody was very patient. But, it, you know, I, uh, um, when I took preaching at Truett, I had Raymond Bailey, uh, yeah. the, the uh, the famous preacher, uh, Raymond Bailey, who was pastor there at Seventh at the time. And, uh, you know, he was, he's just one of those individuals that has a, has a presence about them. The first time I heard him preach in chapel, he just, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't know who he was. I had never met him before. I was, a, I was a new student and he got up off of the front pew and he just walked right out in front of the, kind of in the middle uh, of the auditorium, he didn't walk up behind the podium. He had his hands in his pockets and he just began to preach. Hmm. One of the most uh, phenomenal sermons I have ever heard. It was just an absolute art listening to him offer uh, that, that word that, that particular morning. Well, he taught preaching as an art. And, and so he said, you know, oftentimes preachers, you know, they'll go and they'll do their, uh, their commentary study. They might find an illustration or two and then uh, they'll pray over the text, and and then they'll, they'll they'll give you that on a Sunday morning. And he said that's like an artist getting their canvas and their paints and their paintbrushes and giving that to you and saying that's their work of art. Hmm. And I think what what uh, writing for me was was an opportunity um, to kind of look back over uh, a myriad of experiences um, to see what I felt like was working and where I felt like God was moving. And to be able to put that, put pen to paper, and and be able to kind of treat it like, uh, treat it like I was a, an artist painting a picture. Now, obviously, there are some amazing artists out there, and and, and I'm a bit of a newbie in the space, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed the process. And uh, as much of an extrovert as I am, I, I love the introverted space of being able to, you know, climb up behind my desk and 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 just kind of uh, uh, dream and envision and remember. And hope, and to be able to put that on paper, it was a it was an enjoyable experience for sure. So uh, you're in the process of take two. Uh, you're uh, working now on a second book, and I understand that the bread is still being uh, kneaded, and you're you're about to bake it. Uh, can can you give us a slice in advance? <laughs> can, yeah, yeah. Can, can you give us a peek behind the curtain? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you a peek, and then maybe somebody who's listening can actually take the book and do a better version of it. But uh, I have two two that are in the hopper now. Uh, one okay. is uh, uh, Love Justice, and uh, it is 
um, uh, uh, the idea um, uh, with Love Justice is that I'm going to profile 10 Christians who are bending the world towards justice in our current context. Wow. And I feel like because there has been uh, there have been so much uh, so many awful things, um, unfortunately said by many Christians um, over the past several years, uh, that it would be ideal for people to be able uh, to see and hear from peop- uh, the, the, the real um, amazing people who are, are leading from a faith perspective um, it, to, to bend the world towards justice. Uh, we're doing that on a day-in, day-out basis. And so that's, that's the first book. The second one is called The Justice Equation. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it's more of a dense volume um, that kind of really dives into um, why do we have poverty? Uh, in our world? Why do we have hunger? How are those issues uh, of, of hunger and poverty and immigration and climate change and so forth intertwined? And uh, how do we get here? What is scripture, how does scripture, uh, uh, you know, uh, help re- reorient us um, to that particular issue? And then where can we go from here? And so if you think about the just, you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, um, there's, there's a sense of an equation you know, if you do this, or if you don't do this, then you are going to get this. And uh, uh, there's a sense of an equation. And so I want to be able to parallel that. And I'll be pulling from a lot of our research. Uh, We have a a huge research team right now, um, who is doing uh, um, a number of, I think we have three or four federal studies that we're involved with. And so I'll take that and and translate that for the everyday audience. But um, that one's going to take a while. That'll take a while. But, But the Love Justice book I'm excited about, in part, well, well, I'm excited about the book tour, uh, being able to have wonderful guests um, on stage uh, to be able to share their story around the country. I'm, I'm very excited about that aspect. That's amazing. This uh, volume, The Justice Equation, makes me recall yesterday in our chapel, uh, one of our friends, Dr. Albert Reyes, president and chief executive officer of Buckner International, was sharing from Matthew 6, Jeremy, and that familiar text, Uh, seek first the kingdom of God. He helped us to see afresh and its righteousness could well be rendered and its justice and the justice of God. And this will be added to you. So uh, the church uh, and uh, those who care uh, about matters of uh, food equity and uh, matters of poverty stand to, to benefit. Keep, keep at it, brother. Uh, we, we, we need that work. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, um, our conversation today largely just makes me want to have more conversations with you, uh, but uh, maybe I can just try to get on your calendar for coffee. But, but meanwhile, I want to draw our time to a close with uh, one, one further question, if that's okay. Um, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, you not only want to inform folks uh, about hunger and poverty, uh, you want to inspire people. You, you want to call them to work to eradicate it. So I wonder, as we conclude our conversation this afternoon, would you please share uh, what folks might do uh, in their own way, in their own locations, on a tangible level, a practical plane, in a concrete way to address and to reverse the cycle of hunger and poverty that is so true for so many uh, in the city of Waco, in the county of McLennan, 
uh, in the state of Texas and the country that is the US, but it knows really no boundaries as you've helped us to see from uh, the bottom of the Grand Canyon to uh, a, a community in far-flung Alaska. So, so what, what can we do? It's not only enough to be concerned. Um, we, we, have to, we have to also not only dream, but we have to do. Uh, that is a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think the first thing is proximity. Um, I think, I think what, what's most important right now for people uh, for people of faith, um, for people who are interested in engaging uh, economic or racial injustice, um, or interested in engaging food justice issues, is to get proximity to the problem. And then when you have proximity to the problem, that's going to be proximity to people who are experiencing these myriad of issues. One, it's important to remember that though we oftentimes talk about economic justice and racial justice and food justice all as if they are different disciplines and we act, we act in an academic setting as if they are di different disciplines and, and everybody is an expert in one of these spaces. The reality is it's the same family on the local level bearing the weight of all these broken social systems. It's Lupe, it's her husband, it's her kids um, that are bearing the weight of the broken social systems. And so getting proximity to people who are experiencing hunger and poverty is the first thing that you need to do. And when you show up, you have to show up with a listening posture. You're going to bring a lot of, uh, you're, you're, you, we all just naturally bring a lot to any given conversation. And oftentimes we're trying to, uh, to make somebody fit uh, the worldview that we already had before we met them. And I would just say, let that go and really listen to them, really hear what they have to say and choose to trust them. It may be an active choice, but choose to trust them. Do that first. Um, and then you'll have a better idea of how you can actually walk with them um, to help them or to walk alongside them in, in their desire uh, to get out of poverty, to, to be able to provide food for their families. And uh, I think the best way to do that it, for, for, for churches and individuals that are looking for ways to plug in uh, Meals on Wheels to me is probably my favorite national program um, because you're able as a volunteer to be able to interact directly with individuals um, who can't get out of their home, um, who are living in very difficult circumstances, they're isolated, and you're able to provide that human connection. Uh, you're able to listen to them, hear from them, and also provide them food to eat. And when you do that, I feel like you're putting flesh on Matthew 25. And, and, and that can be a wonderful opportunity. But those are the things I would do first. So first is to listen and gain proximity and then to serve. Amazing. Gives us a place to begin. Uh, Jeremy, uh, I know that I join those who listen in saying thank you. Uh, thank you to you and your team. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the winsome witness that you're offering. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for educating us. And um, we are absolutely pulling and uh, supporting you. And we look forward to the future work of the uh, Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. And I trust that many who've been able to join us today will be able to find ways to connect uh, and to encourage uh, the work that you all are doing. So um, as we close, do you, you have a last word for us, friend? 
Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in theological education, uh, for your leadership um, at Truett and, and your partnership. Uh, Truett uh, just launched a, a food and a food justice and ecology program. Uh, and, and that really took vision and insight. And, and I am grateful for your leadership and, and helping that come to be. And so uh, I think that uh, I just, I just want to commend you on all the things that you've done to set us up well. What people probably don't realize is how many times I've come to you over the past 10 years to say, what do I do next? Um, how can I keep this thing going? And you've always been able to provide space uh, and, and, um, and you've always been able to walk alongside me uh, through those sometimes very difficult times and, uh, um, and, and, and to strategize with us to see how we could make this project sustainable so that we could continue to impact hunger around the country and around the world. So I'm grateful to you for that and, uh, and grateful to everybody out there um, for all the work that they're doing uh, to bend the world towards justice. Well, it's, it's my joy, Jeremy, and I'm the one who's learning. I'm taking notes as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> um, thanks to everyone who's been able to join us today. What a joy, whether you've been able to uh, catch us through uh, registration for the webinar, whether you've been able to join us on Facebook Live, or whether you're now listening to this as a result of the podcast. Uh, once again, uh, deep thanks and appreciation to Dr. Matt Homeyer, the assistant dean for our, um, uh, our work at, at Truett uh, for external affairs and the director of the uh, church network here at Truett. So uh, thanks very much, Jeremy. Uh, have a good afternoon, friend. And uh, I'm on my way to get on your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good to thanks see you. So much. Bye, you all. <laughs>